Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an episode dedicated to lung cancer. The chief of thoracic surgery describes treatment options for various types of lung cancer. We have shown that patients who do get lung cancer screening on a regular basis or who follow the guidelines do uh, find that we, get, we detect their lung cancers earlier at much more treatable stages. And there are dramatic improvements in survival related to that. And he'll explain everything you need to know about lung cancer screening. You don't want to find the lung cancer when it's causing a problem, when it's causing symptoms, because that invariably means that it's an advanced stage and our cure rates go way down. So the time to find it is when it isn't causing any problem at all. And so the people who are feeling fine, who are at risk for lung cancer, are really the ones we want in screening. All that plus a visit from The Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show about lung cancer, we'll discuss warning signs and how lung cancer is diagnosed. Then we'll go over what's involved in lung cancer screening. But first, Upstate's lung cancer expert talks about treatment options for various types of lung cancer. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Lung cancer remains the leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States, but there are ways to reduce the risk of death, and it's treatable when caught early. I'm talking with Dr. Jason Wallen. He's the Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Upstate University Hospital and Medical Director of the Lung Cancer and Thoracic Oncology Program at the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Wallen. Thanks, Amber. Now, let's first talk about uh, how most cases of lung cancer are discovered. What, what are the early warning signs, and is that what brings people into your office? Well, sadly, there are not very many early warning signs. Uh, in fact, another way to say it would be to put to say that uh, if you have signs, the lung cancer is probably not early anymore. Um, and uh, so most patients who present are presenting uh, sort of by accident where they're, achieve, they're getting x-rays or CAT scans for some other reason and we're discovering uh, a possible lung cancer. Uh, and sadly, a number of people do present with signs and symptoms, but like I said, most of those patients already have advanced disease, which is not the way we wanna be catching them. So they're lucky if they do find it by accident early. That's correct. Now, as more people, and, and we'll talk about this more about lung cancer screening, and as more people undergo lung cancer screening, are you then able to find more lung cancers early? So that's something that's been new in the last few years where we have shown that patients who do get lung cancer screening on a regular basis or who follow the guidelines do uh, find that we get we detect their lung cancers earlier at much more treatable stages, and there are dramatic improvements in survival related to that. Well, we're going to go into a lot greater detail on how lung cancer screening is done, but do I understand correctly that more people are likely to qualify for lung cancer screening in the near future? Yes, there's been an update to the guidelines. So uh, we, they, we are now recommending lung cancer screening for younger patients and for patients who don't have as significant of a, of a smoking history as, as the previous guidelines. I see. Now, getting back to the idea of someone um, discovering a lung cancer incidentally, if they come in for an x-ray for something unrelated, is that x-ray or other imaging scans like it, are, are those definitive? Do they say for sure that it's a lung cancer or could it be something else? The only way to definitively diagnose a lung cancer or any cancer for that matter is to actually get a piece of it. Um, and so, no, to answer your question, no x-rays will definitively tell you that somebody has a cancer or not. Certainly they can raise the concern, uh, particularly chest x-rays can be very challenging to interpret. CT scans are a little bit easier and they can certainly become more concerning, but you still need a biopsy in the end. So tell me how a biopsy is accomplished. It depends a little bit on the location of the tumor. Uh, 
Generally speaking, biops, uh, biopsies can either be performed what we call percutaneously, which is where a needle is introduced through the skin into the area where the tumor is, and that will require some form of what we call image guidance, where uh, the most common modality is a CT scan, um, and the, the radiologist will use a CT scanner to introduce a needle uh, into the lesion. Um, another way which is less common uh, is to use ultrasound. Um, that's only a, a small fraction of tumors that can be diagnosed uh, in that way. And for tumors that are closer to the center areas of the lungs can be diagnosed with a procedure known as bronchoscopy, sometimes with an adjunctive technology uh, such as endobronchial ultrasound or navigational bronchoscopy to make de uh, detecting those lesions easier. So then uh, the sample goes to a lab and a pathologist tells you whether it's cancer or not? That's correct. So, once you have that diagnosis, what do you do to determine what stage or how advanced it is? So, that's a perfect segue. Uh, the 1st thing you need to find out with any suspicious lung nodules, whether it's a cancer or not, once somebody has a known cancer, the next thing you have to do to determine what their treatment is going to be is to figure out what the stage is. And most cancers get a stage of uh, 1 through 4. 1 is the earliest stage. It's usually a small tumor wherever it began. Fours are the most advanced cancers where they spread to other parts of the body. And then there are twos and threes, which usually are larger tumors or they have some lymph nodes that are involved or maybe a combination of, it, of that. And staging with for lung cancer usually involves a PET scan as the next step, which is a nuclear study, which combines both a nuclear imaging study and a CT scan to help us determine areas where a cancer may have spread to. If it's spread, again, a PET scan is not a cancer scan. So just like we talked about with CT scans and chest X-rays, they don't definitively diagnose cancer and they don't definitively tell you where a cancer may have spread to, but they do give you an idea. Uh, we also sometimes use endobronchial ultrasound, which is a little bit more invasive, but it's the uh, bronchoscopy where you put a scope down through the mouth into the windpipe and we can directly assess lymph nodes uh, with that technology. Uh, and there are a few other techniques which are less commonly used as well. Can you describe the two main types of lung cancer? Usually we split, we split lung cancer into small cell and non-small cell. Uh, I always tell patients that uh, most of the time when you hear people talking about lung cancer in quotes, they're talking about the most common variety, which is non-small cell lung carcinoma, which for, accounts for a little over 70% of the new diagnoses of lung cancer. Uh, and then uh, the second uh, group is the small cell lung cancers, which are less common. Uh, they also tend to be more aggressive and they're handled very differently than the more common non-small cell lung carcinomas. So, which one uh, comes from smoking more, most typically? They're both related to smoking. Is it typical for both lungs to be involved or just one? Most cancers start in one place. Uh, and so they start in one lung. And if a lung cancer is in two lungs, you're either talking about two separate cancers, which is not terribly uncommon for lung cancer, or the cancer has spread to the other lung, in which case now you're talking about an increase in stage. Now, in terms of the patients that you see, how what is the age range typically? Cancer doesn't generally discriminate based on age. And so uh, anybody can get any cancer at any time. Uh, there are certain things that make it more likely and lung cancer uh, is more likely to occur in people who are older ages, but uh, it's not uncommon at all to see lung cancers in patients as young as in their early 50s. And, and certainly they can get them into their 90s uh, and perhaps even beyond as well. Um, uh, there are, patient, are patients who are younger than their 50s, but those are much more rare. And is it evenly divided between men and women? No, most lung cancer patients are men, uh, and we believe that's related to the higher incidence of smoking in men historically. Uh, although those ratios are uh, are changing as as more men quit smoking and more women start. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air with your host Amber Smith. I'm talking with Dr. Jason Wallen, the Chief of Thoracic Surgery and Medical Director of the Lung Cancer and Thoracic Oncology Program at Upstate. Now, surgery is one of the treatment options. So can you describe how that is done? Sure. Uh, surgery is usually employed for patients with earlier stage lung cancers. And uh, we favor a minimally invasive approach at Upstate and most uh, institutions do now. 
where we make a series of small incisions, usually about an inch or smaller across, uh, that we go between the ribs with very small instruments and a camera. Uh, in most cases, we use the Da Vinci surgical robot uh, to increase the level of precision and dexterity for the surgeon during the operation. Uh, and that uh, helps us to complete the vast majority of surgeries with a minimally invasive approach. Um, most of the time, we are going to remove an area of the lung where the tumor is, um, and that can be uh, either the lobe of the lung uh, or part of a lobe. And in some rare cases, we move and remove an entire lung. So what factors help you decide whether you're going to just remove the tumor or a section of a lobe or, or the whole lung? So the current state of our knowledge in 2021 uh, tells us that the, the best operation for an early stage lung cancer is to remove the entire lobe of the lung that the cancer is in. And we all have five lobes uh, total. We've got three on the right and two on the left. Uh, so it's not a huge uh, portion of somebody's lung when they lose a lobe. I know a lot of patients when we talk to them in the clinic, they get nervous when we say that. But that's the standard operation, which we think offers the best long-term survival and the least chance that the cancer will grow back where we where we made our incisions. Um, so uh, if we're taking out a whole lung, which is, like I said, is much less common, that's usually because of the location of the cancer. It's usually somewhere right in the root or the central area of the lung, and uh, there's no way to remove it without taking the whole lung out. Happily, we very seldom have to do that. And then patients who we move less than a lobe, uh, it usually is because they have compromised breathing function and we, we still think that surgery is the best treatment for them, but we want to limit the amount of lung we remove because we're worried about the impact that surgery will have on their breathing in the long term. And we don't want anybody to have terrible difficulty with their breathing because of a surgery that we performed. And then finally, there are some patients who make a conscious decision that they want to prioritize their breathing, even though it may be quite good, uh, over the possibilities of uh, dealing with cancer in the future, uh, simply because they want to focus on quality of life. And that can be facilitated by patients who have small tumors in the edge of the lung, uh, where it becomes technically easier to remove part of a lobe and saving the vast majority of the lung for breathing purposes on down the road. You mentioned that we have three lobes in the right lung and two in the left lung. Does that make a difference in their size? So the right lung is a little bit bigger than the left, uh, and that's not so much because of the lobes uh, as it is because uh, there's a little bit more of the heart on the left-hand side than on the right, and so that takes up some of the room that the lung can be in. Uh, the, the, the third or missing lobe on the left-hand side uh, there is an area of the lung which uh, takes up about the same amount of room and we say is analogous to the uh, what's called the middle lobe on the right-hand side. Uh, and so, you know, the bits and pieces are all there, but they're not divided the same way. Oh, interesting. Now, I know the thoracic oncology program is a multidisciplinary team, so patients, you know, have a variety of experts who review their case. At what point might radiation therapy come into play? So, generally speaking, Radiation therapy uh, comes in a couple of forms. Uh, there's what we call stereotactic radiosurgery, and then there's more conventional radiotherapy. And there are other fancier subdivisions of radiation as well. But uh, many people are probably familiar with more conventional forms of radiotherapy, where patients are getting treatment five days a week for uh, you know a period of time each day, and that can go on for five to six weeks. And then uh, for earlier stage cancers where more precision is needed, uh, treatment courses are much shorter and much less arduous with pa many patients getting by with only three treatments of 15 minutes each. And in some cases, even only a single treatment of 15 minutes. Um, and those treatments are usually for patients who are felt to not be candidates for surgery uh, or who would prefer to uh, avoid surgery. I say that because generally we think that surgery provides better long-term survival for an early stage lung cancer than, than radiation does. Uh, and there are a number of reasons that we think that. Sadly, we can only think and we can't know because it's very difficult to complete clinical trials comparing radiation with surgery because nobody wants to sign up for a, a trial where a computer chooses for them whether they have radiation or surgery. 
And so we're, we're stuck making hypotheses. But even if you go to see most radiation oncologists, they'll tell you that you should probably consider a surgery first if you have an early stage lung cancer. And what about chemotherapy? Is that typical for people with lung cancer to need chemotherapy as part of the treatment? It's certainly common. Uh, all treatments, uh, treatment options are based on the stage of the lung cancer. And so any patient who has stage two or greater lung cancer, so stage two, three, or four, uh, will be recommended under, undergo some form of, of medical therapy for their cancer. Uh, you'll hear things like chemotherapy is a word that's commonly used. We also talk about things like immunotherapy or molecular treatments, uh, which are also still drugs and so still technically chemicals, but they don't fall into the conventional quote unquote chemotherapy uh, that we hear people talk about. Well, at this point, which patients have genetic tests done on their tumors to see if a targeted therapy might be helpful? So just about everybody uh, is the answer. The question is whether or not that information will be useful or not. Um, uh, happily, most patients who are undergoing surgery are not going to need any sort of uh, drug or systemic therapy uh, afterwards. And so that information turns out not to be helpful. Um, but we always want to be prepared because some of those tests take longer to get the results. And so by the, if somebody does turn out to have a more advanced stage of lung cancer, we want to be prepared to know what their treatment options are. And so the sooner we test their samples, the better. Now, you mentioned immunotherapy. Um, how would that potentially be used? Who might that be helpful for? So that's uh, currently used for patients with stage three and stage four lung cancers in certain situations. Uh, there are more and more of those situations every day to the point now where most patients in stage three and four are going to see some form of immunotherapy. And genetic testing is used to determine which agents are most appropriate for any given patient. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more about lung cancer with Dr. Jason Wallen after this short break. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jason Wallen, who is the Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Upstate University Hospital and Medical Director of the Lung Cancer and Thoracic Oncology Program at the Upstate Cancer Center. He's providing us with an overview of lung cancer. So let's talk about how curable lung cancer is if you catch it at an early stage. What are the survival rates like for lung cancers that are caught in stage one? They're actually quite good. Uh, stage one lung cancer is a complicated stage because there are actually four substages for stage one, um, and they range from uh, survival in the eighty percent up into the nineties percent. And then stage two, three, and four not as uh, good an outlook. No, not good. The higher the stage, uh, the worse the survival gets. Uh, again, there, you know, the stages in lung cancer are complicated, and so there are substages. But stage two lung cancers usually are somewhere in the sixty percent range, uh, dropping into the thirties to forties, or even less for stage three, um, and and lesser still for stage four. So we definitely want to be catching these lung cancers early. If uh, if a if a tumor is removed successfully, how likely is it that cancer is going to recur in another lobe or the other lung after successful treatment? So uh, recurrence, uh, to use that word, uh, is really dependent on on the stage. And so uh, one of the things I like to tell my patients is that is that cancer never recurs. Uh, it either either they get a new cancer or the old cancer was never gone. And uh, and the chance, the reason that they quote unquote recur that they re reappear is because they were there at the time the operation was completed. We just weren't able to detect it, uh, and there of course limits to our technology uh, to be able to stage or detect cancer in other areas of the body. And so what staging really does is it predicts what is the chance that there's cancer somewhere else that we haven't detected yet. And so, for example, a state patient with stage two lung cancer, usually we take that patient to surgery because we think there's a good chance we can remove everything. But there's also, we know, a very good chance that there's something else out there that we haven't seen yet because it's microscopic and it's just too small to be seen on any of our scans. 
And that's the logic, if you will, for why things like chemotherapy are helpful in those patients is because it can clean up that microscopic disease that may be elsewhere in the body. And so uh, to answer your question more specifically, the, the higher the clinical stage or the stage that we determined at the outset of treatment is, the more likely the cancer is to show up somewhere else at some later time. So recurrence is really the wrong word to use. We all use it, um, but it's not technically what's happening. Do you ever have patients with lung cancer who don't want to stop smoking? And if so, does that change their prognosis? Almost all of them. Really? Very few people want to stop smoking. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's tobacco is the most addictive substance on the planet. And so uh, people are certainly motivated to stop smoking because they want to be healthier. Um, and uh, they're certainly afraid uh, of their diagnosis of lung cancer. And probably most of them have been motivated to smoke, to stop smoking for a, a long time, but it's just so difficult. But there are also patients who just blatantly don't want to. They're happy with smoking. They like smoking. They enjoy smoking. They don't want to change. So that definitely happens. So if someone undergoes treatment and they quit smoking, um, that improves their prognosis, right? It doesn't as much improve the prognosis for the cancer we're treating, but it decreases the chance that they're going to get a new lung cancer in the future. And it also decreases the chance that they're gonna die from other problems. We always think about lung cancer when we think about smoking, but smoking causes a lot of different cancers. And so patients who don't wanna get cancer should definitely consider stopping smoking. But lung cancer is a little bit unique and that even when you undergo uh, surgery or other forms of treatment for lung cancer, it's not like we removed all of your lung, you still have a lot of lung left. And so you can still get new cancers. And uh, so when we're seeing patients after treatment for lung cancer, that's one of the things we're watching for most carefully is for new cancers to pop up that we may treat uh, or detect at an early stage. And we've talked mostly about primary lung cancer where the cancer begins in the lungs. I wonder if treatment options are different for someone whose cancer has spread to the lungs from elsewhere. Do they ever come to you and is surgery ever an option for that patient? So you're right, treatment is very different for those patients. When a cancer spreads to the lung, we no longer call it a lung cancer. Uh, it still retains the name of its original cancer. For example, if a colon cancer spreads to the lung, it doesn't become lung cancer. It's still a colon cancer just now in the lungs. And the way that those cancers are treated really depends on what the original cancer was or the original location of the cancer. And yes, some of those patients do end up needing surgery to remove those areas of uh, where cancer has spread to the lungs. It's not as common, uh, and there are often a lot of other treatments that are necessary, but it really has to be taken as an, on an individual basis and is heavily dependent on what type of cancer they started off with. Well, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about causes because we've heard about smoking causing lung cancer. Can you describe exactly how that happens and whether it's different if you're smoking or vaping as opposed to smoking a cigarette? So cancer in general comes because of cellular damage. So anything that you do that repeatedly damages cells in a given part of your body uh, means that your cells are going to have to repair themselves or grow new cells. And the more cell division or cell repair that is going on, the greater the chance for an error. And those errors are what lead to cancers. And smoking does a lot of damage to the lungs and the lungs uh, definitely try to repair themselves or heal. And uh, when that's happening multiple times a day, every single day, day in and day out for many years, the chances start to become quite significant that a mistake will be made and that uh, one cell will become cancerous. And, and then you develop a full-blown lung cancer. And so anything that causes cell damage, truly in any part of the body, it's not just for lung cancer, uh, can lead to a cancer at some point uh, in time. Do you have any idea how many lung cancer cases are attributable to secondhand smoke? That's much harder to determine. There's actually not a lot of people who have, who have significant secondhand smoke exposure who weren't smokers themselves. Um, and it's also very difficult to measure what somebody's secondhand smoke exposure was. Uh, it's not so convenient like a, like a single cigarette that we can count that somebody has say, well, I've smoked, you know, 10 cigarettes a day or 20 cigarettes a day or a pack a day. Uh, when you're exposed to secondhand smoke exposure, smoke, uh, it's often from 
could be from one person, from multiple people. We don't know exactly how much those people were smoking, uh, how close you were to them. Uh, and, and so it just becomes very difficult to quantify that exposure. How often do you see people with lung cancer who never smoked and were never around smokers? That's unusual, but it does happen. It's certainly a minority of patients. Uh, let me ask you about risk factors besides smoking. Are there other risk factors that would put someone at risk for lung cancer? There are, but they're much less common. Uh, the ones we typically think of are radiation exposure to the chest. So perhaps somebody who was treated with radiation for another cancer or who had radiation exposure through an occupational exposure, that could be possible. Uh, one that we commonly talk about in upstate New York is radon exposure um, and people who buy uh, homes often have to go through radon testing, and that's uh, to make sure that they're not excessive levels coming out of their basement because that can cause cancer. Uh, we also deal with a significant veteran population who served uh, the arm, in the armed forces in Vietnam, and uh, a lot of those patients were exposed to Agent Orange, which uh, is a significant risk factor for lung cancer. And, uh, and, and many of those patients are now currently in their 60s and 70s, which are the ages where they develop lung cancer. So we see a great deal of that as well. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate's Chief of Thoracic Surgery and the Medical Director of the Lung Cancer and Thoracic Oncology Program, Dr. Jason Wallen. In terms of advice for someone who's in treatment for lung cancer, what do you tell your patients? Are, are people generally able to go on about their regular life? Depends a little bit on what types of treatment that they're getting. Uh, for patients who are undergoing surgical therapy, uh, then you know their life definitely gets interrupted for at least a short period of time. Uh, you know there certainly are interruptions related to the initial workup. You, we talked about several tests that patients have to undergo, getting uh, determining the stage of their lung cancer, whether or not they have cancer, and whether or not they're fit for surgery. Um, and so those things can make, you know, getting through a day of work difficult or uh, can make it difficult to attend to other responsibilities that people have. Um, obviously, when you go through surgery, uh, if you're required uh, to be in the hospital, which is most surgical patients, uh, then uh, that can be difficult to get through. But happily, hospital stays are typically short uh, on the order of two to three days. <clears throat> but then there's a period of time of recovery after surgeries as well, uh, where patients are home and up and walking around, but usually not driving for a couple of weeks. And not able to do a lot of heavy lifting. Um, and uh, it's usually best for those people to have somebody around with them, at least for the first few days after an operation. And so for people who live alone, that can be challenging. Uh, patients who are going through more advanced treatments, such as chemotherapy and radiation, particularly if they're happening at the same time, uh, can have more difficulties with fatigue, and so that can be difficult to drive themselves to treatment. Uh, patients often take, you know, a nap or two during the day that maybe they didn't before, go to bed a little earlier at night. Um, sometimes they have less energy because they don't feel as much like eating, um, and the treatments themselves can cause fatigue. Um, and so uh, the vast majority of people are able to do most things, but most people notice some negative impact on their life. Um, you know, it's not uh, the flip side, but people are not usually spending their whole time in the hospital. Uh, people are not, you know, miserable and throwing up and having a terrible time. You know, we've, we've heard lots of horror stories uh, about patient, patients going through things like chemotherapy and radiation for lung cancer, but it's important to know that those things are the exception rather than the rule. The vast majority of patients get through treatment being a little bit tired, uh, you know, like I said, having a little less energy, and certainly they have a few days where they, they feel more crummy than others, um, but the vast majority of patients are home and going about most of their activities of daily living. If someone had part of their lung removed or all of their, one of their lungs removed, will they necessarily have shortness of breath during recovery? I always tell patients that how much you notice what we remove really depends on how much you use what you've got. Um, and for example, somebody who has really good lungs, who doesn't do a lot of physical activity is less likely to notice uh, shortness of breath after removing some portion of their lungs. Somebody who has less lung capacity, but who is more active is going to notice uh, the loss to their breathing significantly more. And those things are difficult to measure. Uh, usually we're able to tell uh, if somebody is going to have trouble 
doing what we call their activities of daily living. And that's what we really try to safeguard as much as possible. We want people to be able to go about their normal business without becoming short of breath. So we don't want people to get short of breath at rest. Uh, we want people to be able to walk around the house without becoming short of breath, to get to the mailbox without becoming short of breath, um, to get dressed without becoming short of breath. Um, but we're a lot less able to, to tell somebody who runs a mile a day and it takes them 10 minutes, if it's going to take them 11 minutes or 12 minutes, or if they're still going to be able to do 10 minutes after their operation. And that may sound funny, but there are plenty of people who are undergoing lung cancer treatment who are very uh, physically active and do a lot of uh, strenuous exercise. And so that does become a priority. Are there alternative medicine treatments that have helped any of your patients or anything that you advise in terms of diet, things to eat or things not to eat that could be helpful during recovery? Well, we do have an integrative medicine program uh, through the Cancer Center at Upstate, which uh, seeks to advise patients on, uh, on, on mostly healthy lifestyle. As you pointed out, diet plays a very important role. Uh, so-called cancer-fighting foods, how to maximize nutrition, uh, focusing on things like meditation and exercise to improve uh, people's health overall. Um, and we, we think that it plays a very important role in, in cancer treatment and patients who are receiving cancer treatment uh, through the Cancer Center should definitely ask about that. Um, uh, in terms of alternative therapy, uh, there's no such thing as alternative medicine. There's medicine that works and there's medicine that does not work. If medicine works, it ceases to be the alternative and becomes what we do. And so uh, we really want to focus on treatments that have some evidence showing their efficacy. So we can be confident that if we recommend a treatment to a patient, that we know it's going to work better or chances are it's going to work better for them than some other treatment. And the problem with a lot of these so-called alternative therapies is they haven't been tested. And so, and they haven't been compared to one another, nor have they been compared to what we normally do. And so in terms of recommending things to people, how are we to choose uh, if we don't know how much more effective treatment A is versus treatment B, what the side effects of treatment A are versus treatment B, uh, it becomes very challenging. Um, so it's very important that when patients are undergoing treatments or choosing treatments, that they know what the evidence for their efficacy is, uh, particularly like a lot of these, these treatments, they have to pay cash for them. You really wanna know what you're getting. Well, you and I talked about lung cancer screening recently in, in 2019 when Upstate's thoracic oncology program celebrated its 20th year of service. So after a short commercial break, we're going to re-air that interview. You did such a thorough job of walking us through everything about how and why lung cancer screening is done. But there's the one new thing, a possible change in who's going to be recommended for screening. So can you tell us again who is likely going to qualify for screening? Sure. So as we talked before, uh, one of the important risk factors for lung cancer is how much somebody smoked. And so we have to have a way to measure that. And uh, the way we measure that is we, we, look, we ask a patient how many packs of cigarettes they typically smoked a day over their lifetime. Uh, the most common number in my experience is one pack of cigarettes per day. So we'll use that for an example. And then we ask them for how many years did they smoke? And obviously, how many years they smoked uh, can vary. Some patients didn't smoke contiguously over their entire life. Some people, you know, started and stopped uh, at various points in their life. But we try to come up with a number for how many years they actually smoked. And we multiply the two. So if somebody smoked a pack of cigarettes a day for 30 years, that's a 30-pack year history of smoking. And that was the, the floor for lung cancer screening before. So if somebody had a 25-pack year history of smoking, they didn't qualify for lung cancer screening. That has changed. Now uh, it is tw down to 20-pack years. So if somebody smoked a pack a day for 20 years or two packs a day for 10 years, that both, both those would get you to 20-pack years. And, and based on that, the patient would qualify for lung cancer screening. Uh, the other uh, thing that has changed in the recommendations is the age range. So we used to say that patients uh, between the ages of 55 and 80 qualified for lung cancer screening. That has now come down to age 50. So ages 50 to 80 qualified for lung cancer screening. And then the final uh, criteria is if the patient has quit smoking, uh, how long ago did they quit? And that has not changed. So uh, anybody who has a significant smoking history, as we just talked about, who has quit less than 15 years ago, qualifies for lung cancer screening.
This has been a very informative overview. Thank you to Dr. Jason Wallen. He's an associate professor of surgery, chief of thoracic surgery at Upstate University Hospital, and the medical director of the lung cancer and thoracic oncology program at the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about lung cancer screening. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. 80% of the lung cancers discovered through screening are early stage and mostly curable, but only about 2% of the people eligible for lung cancer screening actually undergo the test. For help making sense of this is Dr. Jason Wallen in the HealthLink on Air studio. He's the medical director of the Thoracic Oncology Program and the division chief of thoracic surgery at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Wallen. Thank you. Now, Upstate's thoracic oncology program is 20 years old this month, so I've been doing some research on lung cancer, and I was surprised by these numbers. 80% is encouraging, but why are only 2% of the people who qualify for screening actually coming in to have it done? Uh, it's a great question. I think uh, a big problem is awareness. Um, and I think uh, a lot of people, there's a lot of fear uh, associated with lung cancer. I think as human beings, uh, we're all very nervous to be told uh, that we're sick or that we've got a major health problem and it becomes easy to ignore it. And uh, I think there's also a perception that everybody who has lung cancer does poorly anyway. People don't want to be told to stop smoking. You know, there's a lot of uh, negativity surrounding uh, appointments like this. And uh, I think I'm the same way. You know, you, you just want to avoid unpleasantness. But I think the statistics that you quoted are really, really important because uh, not only are 80% of the lung cancers detected on screening uh, early stage, um, also 80% of early stage lung cancers are curable. So if you do come in and find out that you've got something, the sooner you get it looked at or treated, maybe the better odds. It makes a huge difference because if you look at the older statistics, just broadly speaking, uh, only about 20% of lung cancer patients survive if you're looking at all stages. And uh, unfortunately, historically, the vast majority of lung cancers are, dis are discovered at a late stage. And I think that another thing that uh, goes with awareness, and, and we hear a lot from patients, is that, you know, how can I have a lung cancer? I feel fine. And, uh, and that's a, a huge um, problem because you don't want to find a lung cancer when it's causing a problem, when it's causing symptoms, because that invariably means that it's an advanced stage and our cure rates go way down. So the time to find it is when it isn't causing any problem at all. And so the people who are feeling fine, who are at risk for lung cancer, are really the ones we want in screening. In fact, it's not even called screening anymore once you have symptoms. Um, then you're trying to evaluate a specific symptoms. Screening, by definition, is for patients who don't have any problems at all, and those are the ones that we're most likely to save. So let's talk about what's involved in lung cancer screening. Um, what's, how is it done? So it's one of the uh, easier tests that we do. Uh, it involves a CT scan of the chest, which is a painless x-ray. It's a low-dose version of the CT scans that we do for many other tests, which means that less radiation is used. Um, they do not use uh, intravenous contrast dye, which is also used in a lot of CT scans. And that's important because it makes the test longer. Uh, there are uh, some few patients who are allergic to the dye, and there are some other health problems which makes using the dye more dangerous. And so uh, when you don't use the dye, it makes the test faster, safer, and easier. You don't have to get any blood tests before it. Uh, you can literally come in and out and, and be done with the whole thing in 15 minutes. And much like women getting a mammogram, you get a letter uh, a week or so later telling you uh, either everything is fine or if there's anything else that needs to be done uh, pursuant to the exam. Now, it, this is relatively new technology? or I mean, CT scans have been around, but... Right, yeah, the technology is very old. The uh, What's new is our understanding of uh, how we can prevent 
people getting to advanced stage lung cancers or prevent lung cancer deaths with the use of CT scan. People have been trying to find a screening test for lung cancer for decades, and there have been many tests. The most common one was a chest x-ray, um, and the problem with chest x-rays are they do not detect lung cancers early enough for us to be able to make a difference. Sure, you can find lung cancers, but the key is really to find them at an early stage where you can change the outcome. If you find it in an advanced stage, then chances are uh, if you waited until the patient had symptoms, the outcome would be the same. And so, like I said, we, we really, uh, the, the earth-shattering revelation when CT screening came into effect was that here there actually was a test where we could very reliably detect these cancers at an early and very treatable stage. But now, let me ask you an insurance question. Mm -hmm. um, Medicare pays for this test for most people, right? Or for people who are qualified? That's correct. So as long as the patient uh, meets the criteria for lung cancer screening, um, then uh, all insurances will pay for the CT scan. Okay, that's um, good, good there, to know. There is an additional requirement um, in that uh, that you do have to have a discussion with your doctor um, about CT screening. And uh, the reason is, is because with CT screening comes a fair bit of responsibility. Um, so one thing you have to understand is, is that the vast majority of the lesions that we find on CT screening are actually benign and are not lung cancers. And that's one of the reasons why we don't like doing a lot of x-rays on people who don't have any problems, is we find things that we don't want to or don't need to find. And that does cause some anxiety and unfortunately sometimes leads to additional medical procedures that perhaps might not have otherwise been necessary. And so it's very important that patients do have an understanding of that and also that they don't really get so anxious or so freaked out when they find something because particularly in smokers we find lots of little nodules and spots and scars and things from uh, you know oftentimes a lifetime of, of ongoing lung damage and uh, it's up to us uh, in the thoracic oncology program or to other providers to kind of sort through the data that comes on the CT scan and try to determine what are the things that are worrisome and what are the things that are not and and that, you know, sometimes uh, there's additional follow-up studies, you know, typically lung cancer screening CAT scans are done once a year, but if we find things, oftentimes we need to do a CT scan sooner. Sometimes that means that there are biopsies or minor surgical procedures that need to be done or will be recommended. And, uh, and then there's a responsibility for ongoing follow-up. And so, you know, screening works if we continue to do it. This is Upstate Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Jason Wallen, the Medical Director of the Thoracic Oncology Program and Division Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Upstate. Well, you mentioned that these scans may show nodules or things that, that aren't cancerous, that are benign. So how do you, I guess, walk me through what you do when, when you do find something on one of these scans. Um, how, how do you give that information to the patient and how you decide if one of those areas needs to do further treatment or a biopsy? So uh, it helps to have a fair bit of expertise in the subject, and to that effect, um, we have a dedicated chest radiology team uh, with folks who only look at scans of the chest, so they're not people who are looking at your knee x-ray and your back x-ray, you know, they, they really just focus on, on looking at these things. So there's a high level of expertise uh, that goes into determining uh, from an x-ray or a CT scan, you know, is this something worrisome or not? And there's a lot of different characteristics uh, of you know, whatever you want to call it. You know, we, we hear a lot of words that people use to describe the findings on CAT scans. People talk about nodules, spots, lumps, shadows. Uh, these things all mean the same thing. Uh, but for us, you know, we're looking at very specific radiographic characteristics. And what we're trying to avoid is sticking a needle in everything. You know, we want to be somewhat sophisticated about what needs to be biopsied and what doesn't so we can minimize uh, the uh, stress and complications that can come from finding things, like I said, that don't need to be found. Unfortunately, all medical procedures come with the potential for a complication. Sure. And uh, even on the best uh, surgeon's best day, the chance of having problems is not zero. And so we want to minimize the number of unnecessary things that we do. So you mentioned that people may come every year, like a woman goes for a mammogram every year. You may come for lung cancer screening. Do they look at the scans from previous years for comparison? 
They do, yep. Uh, particularly if there are nodules that are seen. You know, if there are no nodules, then you don't need to compare uh, as much. But if there is a nodule that you find, the first thing you want to do is look at older studies. And in fact, even if you're coming for your first CT screening uh, and you have some kind of a finding that's abnormal, the first thing the radiologist is going to want to know is if you had any other x-rays or scans somewhere else. Because um, obviously we found out that, sure, you have something that looks suspicious, but it's been there for 20 years. The chance that it's a lung cancer is pretty unlikely. So that's really helpful and that can save us a lot of procedures. Well, I want to talk about who is a candidate, um, what, what the criteria are for lung cancer screening, but I want to let listeners know um, that they can call uh, Upstate Connect at 315-464-8668 for additional information. Um, anyone who ever smoked, does that make them qualify for lung cancer screening? No, it doesn't. And, and that's a frustration for a lot of smokers because some people who don't meet the criteria are frustrated because they feel like they're being excluded. And it's one of the important things uh, to understand about screening studies are is that in order for them to make sense for society, they have to be able to detect uh, lesions often enough and at an early enough stage where you can intervene. And so when they did the clinical trials to establish lung cancer screening, they, they chose a patient population which they the, the uh, investigators thought would be a high-risk population. And so they picked people who were between the ages of 55 and 79 who had been smoking for many years. We always talk about uh, quote-unquote pack year history when we're describing smokers. And it's a simple calculation where you multiply the number of packs per day that a smoker smoked times the number of years that they were smoking. And it gets a little complicated sometimes because a lot of people didn't smoke the same amount uh, throughout their entire smoking history. And sometimes they quit for a year or two and then started again. And so you, you kind of have to make your best uh, shot at an accurate calculation, but we're looking at people who have a 30-pack year history of smoking and also people who quit less than 15 years ago. And so, for better or for worse, that was the study population, and it was found in this trial that if you did a low-dose radiation CT scan once a year on these people that meet these criteria, then you decrease their chance of dying from a lung cancer by 20%. And so when we say that you can't get a screening CT scan because you don't meet the criteria, it's not a saying that we can't help you with a CT scan, but this is the population that we know we can benefit. And so that's why the insurance companies pay for it, because we know that we have an impact on that group. And further clinical trials would have to be performed to evaluate the utility for people who are perhaps younger, perhaps older, or people who smoked less. So you said uh, age 55, and then in this study it was to 79. Correct. Is that because lung cancer typically shows up in older people? That's correct. Okay. Um, now what about some, of, some people who undergo the screening are still smoking? That's correct. So you don't have to have quit in order to qualify? Absolutely not. But that's another reason why a visit with uh, your primary care provider or other interested doctor is important because uh, if you're still smoking, we want to help you to quit as obviously we want to decrease your risk of lung cancer as much as possible. And so uh, some discussion of smoking cessation is mandatory in the decision to initiate lung cancer screening. You don't have to quit, um, but we do have to talk to you about quitting and try to provide your resources to quit because obviously there are many ways to decrease the chances of dying from lung cancer. Getting CAT scans is one of them. Another one is stopping smoking. Now, someone who smoked long ago, say as a teenager, and quit and has been quit for more than 15 years, it, are they just, is their risk so much lower because they quit so long ago that they don't qualify? Or what's the reasoning for that? That's what it is. I mean, somebody who quit a long time ago uh, probably also means they didn't smoke for very long. And so their exposure is limited. And so uh, the understanding is, is that the risk of lung cancer is uh, markedly less in people who uh, smoked many years ago and who didn't smoke very much. So we do, you know, get questions from patients who smoked when they were in college and, you know, or smoked when they were in the military and, and then quit when they 
finished or exited those times in their lives. And they may have even smoked very heavy for three, four, or five years, but that's not going to get them into the so-called high-risk group. That doesn't mean they can't get a lung cancer. I mean, anybody can get any cancer at any time. Uh, there are just certain things that uh, we do that increase our risks of, of, of developing, you know, certain cancers. And so, you know, like I said, we're, we're, that's why we have to focus our attention on the high-risk populations because as you start expanding, suddenly before you know it, you're scanning everybody and we can't be running, you know, every single New Yorker through a CAD scan every year. Right. Now, isn't the rate of lung cancers in non-smokers rising? That may be true. Um, I think a bigger problem is that uh, awareness is going up and a lot of people are quitting smoking and so those non-smokers are, uh, are generating more attention. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who would have been non-smokers who developed lung cancers 30 or 40 years ago were much more likely to be in smoking and so you saw those folks a lot less. Well, thank you to the medical director of the Thoracic Oncology Program at Upstate, Dr. Jason Wallen. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Lisa Wiley teaches English at SUNY Erie Community College in Buffalo, New York. She sent us a short but joyful portrait of a good doctor. Here is Dr. Moon is my mother's oncologist. Wonder if I'll see all his phases. Luminous, his round, smiling face pushes the celery-colored curtains aside, pulling all anxious tides toward him. My mother questions her arm hooked up to the juice, my father calls it. You need this, Dr. Moon says, or else my whole life is wrong. These shimmering rays of certainty, no sliver of tiny crescents, waning or waxing. You've got this, asserts quick-to-laugh Luna, a brilliant harvest moon. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how a genetic counselor can help you determine your cancer risk. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.